Welcome to the Sonoma Collective Podcast. We are a faith family practicing the way of Jesus together in beautiful Sonoma, California. If you'd like to learn more about Sonoma Collective, its ministries, or how you can support us financially, visit sonomacollective.com. Flip through any popular magazine and you will see today all sorts of advertisements. A couple drinking coffee and reading the newspaper in bed and their robes with the beautifully appointed, minimalistic, yet warm, homey uh, bedroom. Uh, You'll see a man lying on a couch, lounging, looking way cooler than you could ever hope to be, playing guitar. Or even a group of friends, not an unattractive one amongst the group, on the beach for a picnic. But what exactly are they selling? They are selling Sabbath. The word Sabbath and Shabbat in Hebrew is, is Shabbat in Hebrew, and it literally means to stop or to cease or be done. And the marketing companies and departments of the companies worldwide over know that you ache for this kind of life, but that you don't have it. And they're offering to sell it to you. The irony is, though, you can't buy Sabbath and you don't need to. To Sabbath, you don't need to drop $69.99 on a new terry cloth bathrobe or blow half your paycheck on a new couch. You just need to stop. This primal human ache for Sabbath, for what the spiritual writer Marva Dawn called a Sabbath spirituality, a life where we are at peace in God and live with joy, is nothing new. It goes all the way back to Jesus' day. In fact, it comes out of one of Jesus' most famous invitations that we find in Matthew chapter 11. This is our anchor text today. Let me read it to us again. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I love uh, Pastor Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this, uh, that we would find that in the message translation. And his take on this in more modern language today goes like this. Are you tired? (laughs) Of course we are. Worn out, burned out on religion. Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. The first question, it's become rhetorical in our modern age. Are you tired? Of course you are. We're all tired. Low-grade exhaustion is just the new normal. And there's a few reasons for this, um, one of which is body-based. It has to do with our bodies. Up until very recently in human history, right? However long you think human history has lasted, certainly thousands of years, if not more. The the reality is that for up until about the last hundred years or so, most people on average slept 10 to 11 hours a night. And with modern inventions like the light bulb, electricity, discovery of electricity, how to harness it, uh, alarm clocks, all these things, the average person in the Western world today gets just over six I mean, 10 to 11 to 6, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that's a dramatic shift. And that's just new. It's new to the human experience. And so, of course, then you can just think of all the latest research from neuroscientists on how devastating of an impact it is that we don't get sufficient sleep on just our minds, our bodies, our whole persons. And look, there are seasons of life, of course, where this is unavoidable, right? If you've ever had 
a newborn, you had kids, you know, in that season, it is just challenging to get sleep. Or maybe you work a 12 or 24 hour shift, or you're just in a season where night night shift. I mean, there are times of life where it's just unavoidable, but yet this has become chronic for far too many of us. And all of us are suffering the effects. We're all diminished in our whole person because we're so tired. But it's not just our bodies that are tired. It's in Jesus's language, our souls are suffering. Even though we go on vacations and we can catch up on sleep, there's still this like psycho-spiritual exhaustion that does not go away in the modern world. And this is a result of all sorts of things like hurry, busyness, frenetic pace of modern life. I mean, just take a few things into consideration. The noise pollution of city life, or just the constant activity and movements and, and uh, things that are happening. The always-on work culture. There's expectations now that you should be available at any time to your boss or your uh, those are your direct reports to you. Uh, there's just this unhealthy rhythm we've developed. Of course, the rising cost of living means many of us are working multiple jobs just to simply stay afloat. And that's not even to tap into the digital age. We have these cell phones that just never stop buzzing and beeping. There's this constant stream of alerts, the churn of a 24-7 news cycle, which of course is just fueled with outrage and fear. Oh, and by the way, it's a election year, so there's the polarization of politics. And then the defining trait of what it means to be American, this idea of radical individualism, and with it, the shadow side to it, this epidemic of loneliness, which many are calling the greatest health crisis of our time. Very recently, former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy put out a report that said the number one medical issue crises facing Americans today is loneliness. He equated it to actually being more detrimental to you than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's how bad this mental health crisis is in our current culture. And all of that, add it all up, it is just way too much for any one of us or several of us to try and carry. So is it any wonder that we're tired? And look, the, this problem of chronic exhaustion, it's not just an emotional problem or even a medical problem. At its core, of course, it's a spiritual problem. And that's because of the God that we follow, his favorite four-letter word, L-O-V-E, love. If Jesus is your rabbi, if he's the one that you are apprenticing to, if you're the one who you're following, who you've surrendered your life to, given him the reins and call him Lord or Master, he said that the greatest commandment in all of Scripture, as he understood it, his Bible, the Hebrew Bible, we call the Old Testament, all of that is summed up in a word, love. He said it's the, the greatest commandment, most important, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, just like it, is to love your neighbor as yourself. He puts those on par together. It's like 1A, 1B, not like 1 and 2, but they're almost in this, in the sense the same command. And so for Jesus, the telos or the culminating point, the North Star, what we're aiming towards in our, in our, in our imaginations as we go on this spiritual journey is love. And quite frankly, it's the, the one and only metric by which we can actually chart our progress. It's not based on church attendance, how many times you pray or what you give to the church, but are you growing in your capacity to love? Are you becoming a more loving person? That is, according to Jesus, the number one, the only way we can measure if we're actually going successfully down this spiritual journey pathway. But the more exhausted we are, the more difficult it is for us to love or to bear any fruit of the Spirit. As Jesus also said in the Gospel according to Mark 4.19, he said, The worries of this age, 
the deceitfulness of wealth. We face these things right in our own hometown. The desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And here's the deal. The hard truth, it's just the way it is. There's two twofold to it. First, if love for God and obedience to God are two sides of the same coin, as Jesus seems pretty clearly to teach, it's hard to love God when you're worn down. You see, because when we're tired, we're more prone to sin. And so it's harder to obey God when we're tired. Scientists will tell us that the lack of rest, it erodes energy, brain energy, specifically from the area of your brain called the prefrontal cortex. And that's the part that exercises impulse control. So literally, as you're tired, you're less able to resist temptation as it comes, meaning you are less likely to obey God, thereby love God according to Jesus' teachings. But secondly, it's hard to love people too. <laughs> I found as a general rule, tired people are not loving. And I start by looking in the mirror with that assessment. Most of my worst moments as a human, as a friend, uh, a coworker, certainly as a husband or father, are when I'm exhausted, when I'm stressed, and in a hurry. I mean, I can just really put it to those three things. Like, if I were able to get rid of those three things, exhaustion, stress, and hurry, I'd be a pretty pretty awesome dad, pretty awesome husband. Look, if you want to see me at my worst, wake me up at 2 or 3 in the morning. And if you don't take a word, just take Chris's word for it. I, I mean, if... Uh, it's I'm a bear. It's it's horrible. I'm more irritable. I'm impatient. I'm selfish. It's like I've devolved down Maslow's hierarchy of uh, in, of of needs just to my base survival instincts. Like I just need to survive right now. I don't care about anyone or anything. Like I'm I'm gonna die if I don't get my sleep. It's just it's really sad. It's definitely a, a, a strong area of growth for me and my discipleship to Jesus. And look, I don't know if you you can relate to that or you have similar uh, stories in your life, but. Friends, this is not how it's meant to be. Jesus's will for your life is not for you to be chronically exhausted. When he said, I've come to give you life and life to the full, the blessed life, the fulfilled life, in his imagination, it wasn't you being exhausted, sleep deprived, unhappy, and living with no margin. That's the enemy's will for your life, not Jesus's. <laughs> it's the enemy. It's the devil who is anti-Sabbath. Uh, I remember when I first... Uh, came to faith and shortly thereafter started serving in the church and then even uh, came on staff at the church. And I remember a cliche that was thrown around and it was a, a really active ministry, lots of activity. And there was this kind of cliche. It was like, look, we got to go hard because the devil never takes a day off. Now, theologically, that, that's true. I would agree with that statement. But the last time I checked, we're not following the devil. We're following Jesus. And spoiler alert, if you haven't read to the end of the book, uh, in the end, the devil, he dies. So that whole anti-Sabbath plan isn't going to work out very well for him or anybody else who thinks that they can live that way and attain life to the full as Jesus uh, has come to offer. And so I remember a profound moment in uh, my life, in our family's life, about six years ago. At that time, I was leading a campus at a large uh, mega church with multiple campuses. I was leading one of those campuses of about 1,500 people, and I was working a ton, mostly six days, sometimes even seven days a week, certainly under a lot of stress because of all that activity and, and care for all those people. And, and I just found that over time, I did it for eight years, I was becoming less and less loving, not more. I wasn't growing in my ability to love. 
And I, I just had a lot of anger. I was on edge. I was worn, worn thin. And I just didn't have the energy to be present at work and then also with my family or even to myself or even to God. And so Chris and I, we had a conversation. I've shared this before in other, in other venues. But we just said, look, if our girls, because we didn't have Cam at the time, if they end up going through this church experience, if I'm still the pastor of this church, we're leading this church for the next 20 years, and our girls go through the kids' ministry, and they go through youth, and, and then they become adults. Are they going to be loving people? Are they going to have quality character? Are they going to be obedient, resilient followers of Jesus, hearing his voice and obeying his voice and, and, and following in his will for their life? And it was a really sobering, humbling, embarrassing in some ways conversation because the reality is we didn't, we weren't convinced. Honestly, we thought maybe you know, there's a chance, but it's not because of this church thing that we're a part of. Uh, in fact, it may even be in spite of it in some ways. And so we just said, listen, we gotta, we've got to do something here. We've got to make a change. And the first change we made is it just kind of dawned on us like we, I'm a pastor. We're, we're leading a church and we don't Sabbath. We don't rest. It's, it, it is one of the 10 commandments, right? And so we said, look, okay, we're going to start. This is, we don't know, there's lots of things I'm sure we got to fix, but the first thing we do is we're going to take one day a week and we're just going to stop and we're going to rest and we're not going to give in to this cultural stream and this that we find ourselves in. And it literally changed the trajectory of my life and our family's life. We would not be here today, gathered together today, had we not decided to take Sabbath and start practicing the Sabbath those years ago. And so for me, I'm going to devote my life to this practice. The, the rest of my life, I will practice Sabbath because honestly, it's, it's a weekly opportunity. It's a weekly experience of transformation in my life. So here's maybe a metaphor that can help. Imagine your life as an energy, life energy as a power bar, like on your phone, right? You see the battery gauge. 100% is what Jesus called the full life, life to the full. And 0% is dead. <laughs> six feet under. So that, that's your, that's your, that's your um, spectrum there. That's your, that's a continuum. We usually, for honest, we don't rest until we're dangerously tired. Like when we get down to like 20 or even 30%. And when we do rest, it's not long enough to get all the way back up to full. We, we just get like maybe 60%, maybe 70%. And then boom, we're right back at it. We just keep going. But what do we miss out on in that last 30% if we were to truly take the rest that God has on offer for us? Well, uh, in the writings of the New Testament, uh, one of the things we're missing out on is called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The best stuff that we're really after in life, it comes when we're rested. Wisdom, insight, the, the hope and vision for the future, grace for other people's shortcomings, and even grace for our own shortcomings, and just the energy to do like the best work we could possibly do, and uh, the creativity that we desire in, in, our, in our everyday lives. And this is why rest is essential, not optional, essential to apprenticeship to Jesus. Because if the end goal is to become a person of love in God, we can't do that if we're chronically exhausted. So is there a practice from the way of Jesus to reorient us away from exhaustion, sleep deprivation, and toward life to the full? Yes, it is the practice of Sabbath. Again, that word Sabbath is Shabbat in Hebrew, and it literally means 
to stop. Most literally, it's to stop. But it also has other nuances, other meanings, and it can also mean things like rest, to delight, or even to worship. And based on that, um, we can frame the Sabbath in four movements. So we're starting a series. Uh, we started last week, talked about theory of change, but today we're getting into Sabbath itself. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at Sabbath from those four different viewpoints, four different angles, if you will, to what it means to stop, next week rest, delight, and then worship. We're going to cover each of those in the next four weeks. But today, we're just going to talk about one thing, and that's stop. So if you got your Bibles uh, still open, go ahead and go to page two, right to the beginning. Uh, chapter two of Genesis, uh, the first three verses. Many uh, biblical scholars would argue that this should be part of the first chapter, but just the way that things got chaptered and, and sliced up over the years. Um, it's it's now the beginning part of uh, chapter two. But what we come upon here is God has created everything out of nothing. There's a creator God. He introduces himself. And out of nothing, he creates everything, creates creation, universe, all things, us in his image. And then, then we get to chapter two after all that creation has happened. And here's what it says. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed, done, finished. On the seventh day, God on the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, set apart, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Notice God Sabbath. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've been part of church for any period of time, you've probably read this more than one, on one time. And I remember the first time for me, it really hit me, and this is about six years ago, that God Sabbath. Yeah, Jason, that's nice. That's all well and good, but I'm type A, high capacity person. God Sabbath. Yeah, but I'm more of a doer. Like, I've got a lot going on in my life right now. Okay, God, the creator of all things, he Sabbathed. Yeah, but I got little kids at home and I'm starting a new business. God, Sabbath. So here's just a little um, maybe helpful uh, list for you. Perhaps just call it a quiz, if you will. Of course, no, no, we're not keeping score. Uh, but if you go through these things here, and if you can answer yes to even one, certainly if you can answer yes to multiples of these, you are in desperate need of a Sabbath. So uh, if you can relate to these things, then I would say, yes, Sabbath is definitely uh, prescribed for you. The only time you're alone is in the bathroom. Uh, can I, I see you moms. I see you out there. <laughs> You're like, yep, that's me. Uh, it takes you over 30 minutes to fall asleep because your mind is racing about the things you forgot to do. How about another one? Uh, you think rest is standing still in traffic. Or how about this? You check your email for a moment and there and still are there an hour later. Like what, what, what happened? What am I doing with my life? You can't remember anything you ate the last three days. Maybe not even this morning. You drove for an hour and you had so much on your mind that when you arrived at your destination, you're not even sure how you got there. You don't even know what day it is today. Or perhaps you, this relates to you. You find yourself jealous and angry when someone else is enjoying life. I'm embarrassed to say that I'm guilty of that one at times. You can't remember the last time you sat down to eat breakfast. Uh, you tweet during movies, you text during dinner, you read email during meetings, or you learn about your spouse's day from Instagram or social media platform of choice, right? Like if you can say yes to even some of those, and I'm guessing many of you will say yes to lots of those, we are in need of a Sabbath. So God the creator, he stopped, he rested, he Sabbathed. And in doing so, he built a rhythm into the fabric of creation. 
we work for six days, and then we Sabbath, we stop for one. It shouldn't come as a surprise that every single society in the history of world civilization has been built around a seven-day week. Even though, and this is what's fascinating, the week is the one unit of time that's not tied to the movement of the stars or the planets. Think about this. The day, right, it's tied to the Earth's 24-hour rotation. It spins one full rotation on its axis in 24 hours. The month, that's tied to the, mo the moon's lunar cycle. And the year, of course, is the amount of time it takes for the planet Earth to circle around the nearest star, the sun, in 365 and about a quarter days. The seven-day week is not. It has nothing to do with the stars. It's simply built out of God's own life rhythm. And there have been attempts, as you can imagine, over time to do away with this seven-day week. Uh, most notably in 1793, this is around the French Revolution, when the, um, the royal party, the ruling class and religion was thought to be evil, and in many ways they unfortunately were. And so the revolution was like, we got to get rid of that. We got to get rid of all religion. We got to get rid of all this stuff. And so one of the ways they decided to do that was they wanted to implement a 10-day work week. Part of that, again, was to get rid of Sunday, the day that many people would worship their God. But they also wanted up productivity. So they went from a seven to a 10-day work week. So you work nine days, then you get to rest on one. The result, <laughs> you can imagine, productivity plummeted. It was horrendous. It was an abject disaster. But even worse than that, there was a, a whole rash of suicides and a tremendous spread of mental illness all over the land. And so this thing only lasted about 12 years before they're like, this is crazy. We got to go back to seven days. But even today, fast forward a couple hundred years, our generation, we're reliving the French Revolution all over again. And it's not because the government's mandating we work more. But there is this vast conspiracy of modern life that is throwing us out of any kind of rhythm at all. Again, think about it. The smartphone, electricity, the alarm clock, the, claw, the car. Again, all these are wonderful things. I'm not anti-technology, but they have created a world in which we go and we go and we go and we go and we just don't ever stop. But God created the human body. He created the planet itself, all of creation, to live in a rhythm. There's a rhythm between day and night, waking and sleeping. There's a rhythm between the noise and activity of spring and summer and the quiet and dormancy of fall and winter. There's a tidal rhythm between the land and the sea that exists all over the earth. Even with our own bodies, there's a rhythm of the breath as we inhale and we exhale. And when we lose this sense of rhythm of pace, this back and forth rhythm in nature, we lose a part of our humanity. Friends, you're not machines. You're not a machine at all. You have a soul. You are a soul. And it was not created by God to move 24-7. So when we live without Sabbath, we are in effect going against the rhythm that God, the creator himself, built into our body and into the fabric of all of creation. I love the philosopher H.H. Farmer's quote on this. He said, listen, when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. Um, anybody in here on the sliver camp? Slivers, splinters. I had never heard slivers before, until very recently. It's, we're talking about like those little wood pieces that get in your skin when you rub against a piece of wood the wrong way, go against the grain. Okay, so wherever you're at, splinters, uh, uh, slivers, you get those. And I, and I look around the room and I see there's lots of those spiritual slivers, splinters in us because of the way we're, we're, we're going about life. And so look, this is true on the negative side, quote, when you don't have Sabbath, you do suffer the consequences, burnout, stress, your immune system gets trashed, you have brain fog, you 
relationships are strained and frayed. You're separate. You're really distant from God. On and on we could go. But there's also a truth on the positive side that when we do Sabbath, we get to reap the benefit. We reap the reward. Uh, there's a game, and I'm dating myself on this, that I played when I was in elementary school called Oregon Trail. Uh, it was this fantastic game that came out um, shortly after the Mac, uh, the first Macs were out, the iMacs were out. These were like, they weren't color yet. They were kind of like this green sepia sort of colors to them. And I remember if you did enough work in my school and library time, you got to play a game. One of those games was, excuse me, Oregon Trail. And this game was uh, revolutionary for its time. It was patterned after the original Oregon Trail when people would leave from like the Missouri Valley and they would travel west to for a land grab to claim land. They would do it on, uh, the, you know, they have the big covered wagons with the oxen and the, and, the, and the horses and they would go all the way out to Oregon, their destination, Willamette Valley. And it was treacherous in real life. Many, many people died. Not a lot made the journey because of how difficult it was over such a long distance and all the perils that came. And so this game was built on that. And so you would have to go and hunt at times. You'd have to ford the river and you'd have all sorts of difficult, challenging things. You'd have uh, horses, uh, oxen that would die or axle wheels that would break, or you'd get a variety of diseases like dysentery or snake bites. And it was very difficult to beat this game. In fact, as a, a kid, I never once uh, was able to beat this game. Well, recently they came out with a card game. Um, so, of course, our family got it. And we've played I, I, at least 40 times since we purchased this game years ago. And never once have we beaten it. You have to get like 10 rounds of 10 cards before you finally get to the end of the trail. And I remember one time we were on like we were on nine, round nine with like card four or five, so close to the end. I'm thinking, man, we have not had a lot of calamities. That's a type of card you have to deal with. It, it basically means almost instant death usually in the game. And I had this just sinking suspicion. I don't know if it was the Spirit of God, but I just looked at my daughters, and I'm not going to say which one. And I said, did, did, did you guys stack the deck? And one of uh, our, my daughters looked at me and said, yeah, I really wanted to win the game, so I put all the, all the really bad stuff at the bottom of the deck. <laughs> and I thought, oh, man. And it just surprised me because of her age. I thought that, you know, I was, I was impressed the fact she pulled it off um, almost um, in some ways. But even still stacking the deck, we still lost. We still didn't make it all the way to the end. Um, I say all that because uh, in, in real life, in this Oregon Trail, they got to a point where the weather was getting really bad. The historians tell the story, the pioneers along the trail. Since winter was approaching, they said, look, we're going to have to split up because there was a divide in the camp. Uh, half the group wanted to continue to honor and practice the Sabbath. The other group said, we just got to get there, so we're going to go. And so they divided over this. One group said, we're going to keep doing the six-in-one rhythm. And the other's like, we're going to go seven days a week. And can you guess which group got to the end of the trail first? That's right. It was the one who practiced the Sabbath. They actually got there first. That's incredible. More recently... Uh, medical study, large medical study, uh, large community of Christians that practice Sabbath, and they found that not only was this group of people much happier, on average, more full of joy than the general population, but they actually lived 11, 11 years longer than other Americans. And so one doctor pointed out that if you add up all the time that this group devoted to Sabbath over a lifetime, it would add up to right around 11 years. His theory was that for every day that you Sabbath, you actually literally add a day to your life. Uh, this was made, uh, made more, more public and popular in the recent Netflix series called Blue Zones, where they look at where all the centenarians sort of pockets of them are, where the more centenarians live than any other place in the world. And that's 
here in Southern California, Loma Linda, this group of people, one of the things they attributed to it because that rhythm that they lived as a part of. Well, my point in all this is that that six-in-one rhythm is built into the fabric of God's world, just like gravity or thermodynamics. If you fight it, you will face the consequences. And so this is why later in Scripture, it's commanded by God. So turn to Exodus chapter 20. This is the first time we come across the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. And if you do have your paper Bibles, it's really helpful in this case because you're going to get to see something visually you'll miss if you see it on your uh, device. So I'm going to pick it up, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. We're on commandment number four. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. See, the Sabbath isn't just a good idea. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Matter of fact, if you look at it visually, it's the longest of all the Ten Commandments. More words are used to describe, number four, the Sabbath commandment than any other commandment. It's around 37% of all the words used for the entire Ten Commandments. And again, when we look at it from a literary perspective, this is significant when it comes to Scripture. So in God's economy, it's just as or more important than not lying or stealing or killing. And yet, it's the only commandment we brag about breaking. I mean, even in our modern uh, society where there's moral decay left and right, few people are going to brag about how many lies they told this week or how many affairs they had or just how many people they liked to kill or tried to kill. And yet, many of us brag about how many days in a row we worked, how many emails we responded to over the weekend. Busyness has become a sign of social status. Like how high up the ladder are you based on how busy you are? But this is clearly not the way of God. And of course, for a long time, Christians have debated whether or not the Sabbath is still a binding command on followers of Jesus. And look, there's good people, good arguments on both sides. But listen, for me, asking whether we, quote, have to keep the Sabbath or not is not just, it's not helpful. It's about as helpful as asking if we have to keep the second laws of, uh, second law of thermodynamics. You can work with it or against it, but it just is. And look, even if the Sabbath command is no longer binding, let's say you land on that camp, fine. It still stands as wisdom because there's, look, lots of things that are commanded directly in Scripture, but they are essential to becoming a person of love. I love Wayne Mueller's quote on this. He says, The Sabbath is not a burdensome requirement from some law-giving deity. You ought, you'd better, you must, but rather a remembrance of a law that is firmly embedded in the fabric of nature. It is a reminder of how things really are, the rhythmic dance to which we unavoidably belong. Jesus, uh, in Mark chapter 2, famously said, The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. Now, of course, his original audience that he was speaking to is a generation that had the exact opposite problem as ours. First century Jews, they literally had hundreds of rules around the Sabbath that literally warped God's ultimate intent behind the day. If you've ever been to Israel uh, approaching sundown on Friday because they still practice um, Sabbath from Friday evening to Saturday evening. They, the, the Jewish perspective is that they starts in the evening. And so they start at the beginning of the day and their way of seeing things at Friday night and it lasts all the way through Saturday into the evening. 
you'll see a hustle and, and a flurry of activity going around around the, around the town as people are getting the last minute supplies and preparing because they will literally shut it down. The entire town, like everything will shut down for Sabbath. In fact, there are some you know, hotels and elevators where buttons don't work on Sabbath, like on your air conditioning unit, you can't turn it on because they consider that work, like, like so many rules. And so the first century Jews, they needed to hear the second half of that line that Sabbath, that, that people were not made for the Sabbath. But today we, in our culture, need to hear the first part. The Sabbath was made for people. See, our problem isn't that we have too many rules for the Sabbath. It's that we don't have any. So long before the Sabbath is a command that we come across there in Exodus 20, we see that it is a gift from the creator God to you and to me and all creation. It's given to us from a generous, joyful, loving God that Jesus himself called the Lord of the Sabbath. So hence the command in Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath. But that, of course, begs the question, what is it we remember on the Sabbath? A few things. We remember that there is a creator God, that we live in his world, and it is, in fact, good. We remember that there's a rhythm to creation. We remember that we don't stop when we're finished because, quite frankly, we're never finished. It's never enough. We stop when the rhythm God built into our bodies says to stop. We remember we're not what we do or what we have or even, as hard as it is, what other people think of us. We are who we are deeply loved by. And the, the hard truth is that many people fear stopping because they fear what are the emotions that are going to come up? Like, who am I if I'm not producing or performing? So in many ways, Sabbath is a weekly act of identity formation. We remember the truth, capital T truth, that I am God's loved one. We also remember that our life with God is not a, quote, a right, but it's a gift. We remember that the world, of course, is full of evil and injustice, yes, but it is also full of goodness and beauty and truth. And we remember that we owe it to God to be grateful and full of joy in his world. Grumpiness is not a fruit of the Spirit. We should be the most joyful people on the planet as followers of Jesus. You see, Sabbath is way more than just a day. It's an actual way of being in our world. And the practice of Sabbath is a day of rest which, by which we can cultivate a spirit of restfulness in all of life. And so something will happen. It's a practice that as we undergo it, there's a dramatic shift that will occur if we stick to it long enough. We'll go from restlessness to restfulness. We'll transition from hurry to peace, from busyness to margin. We'll go from burnout to a sustainable pace. We'll uh, walk away from noise into quiet. We'll go from distraction into clarity of mind, away from isolation, loneliness to solitude with God. We'll go from crowds into community. We'll even go from grasping to gratitude. Like, Do you see it? Do you have a vision of it in your mind of what this life could look like for you? Good. But let's go from the clouds and let's bring it down to the ground. Let's bring it to earth because Sabbath isn't just this aspirational idea. It's a practice. It's what the psychologist James Clear calls a keystone habit. It's out of which, if you have this habit, so many other good habits can flow. So let's just get real practical here. We'll talk a lot more about this over the coming weeks, but just some practical things. If you're saying, I want this and I'm going to go for it this week and I'm going to start a Sabbath. Practically speaking, it's literally a 24-hour period. 
and you can go from morning till night. Uh, our family, we go with a, we go from sundown to sundown, a traditional way of looking at, at things. Uh, but if you're at the point uh, where you are and you've never done Sabbath, let me give you tip number two. Start where you are, not where you think you should be. This all may sound great in your mind, I'm going to do this. But if you've never stopped for even five minutes, chances of you having a successful first 24-hour Sabbath is pretty slim. So start where you are. Maybe for you, it's half a day. Maybe it's taking 12 hours. Maybe it's just taking four hours a day to say, okay, I'm going to just carve out this time and I'm going to stop. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do all the things I would normally do. But start where you are. Eventually, as you add on more, you get comfortable with four hours. You can start going to eight and then to 12 and adding in a full 24-hour period. Also, when it comes to picking up a new skill or new habit, remember the J curve. Um, and, and oftentimes we think, okay, I'm going to start this and boom, I'm going to have this like rapid growth and rapid ascent. But typically we find when taking on something new like this that it actually things get worse before they get better. So it looks kind of like a J where you start to dip down in your progress before you then eventually start to make your way up and then start to excel well beyond where you began. But you got to remember that, that it will often, and it was certainly the case for us, that things kind of got worse before they got uh, better. I remember, you know, thinking like we're going to do this. And so we, we started Sabbathing and yeah, it was challenging. There were many of those early on that I, I, I came out of Sabbath more frustrated, anxious, stressed than I was when we began. I'm thinking this is, can't be the way it's supposed to be, but it was that J curve process that I was in. Things were, were getting worse before they got better. I was looking around thinking like, look at all the laundry I got to do, all my projects I got to get to. And it was just full of stress. I remember we hosted a, a, some friends over once to Sabbath with us, and um, this is years ago. And then more more recently, the, the wife came up to stay with us and to visit with us. And one of the things she mentioned, she says, you know, I got to apologize to you guys because I, I realized I, I really judged you guys. You know, that first day you had us come over and Sabbath with you, and you were saying how it was difficult and challenging, and we we're and my husband and I, we just had the one daughter at the time. We thought you guys were like, what was wrong with them? Like, how hard is it going to be to rest? She's like, but now fast forward like three, four years later and man, it is so hard to do it and we're still working it out, still trying to figure it out. She's like, I'm so sorry I didn't uh, give you the benefit of the doubt there. I really judged you guys. And uh, it's, it's just a reminder that, look, you know, this is a lifetime uh, practice, something you will do for the rest of your life. Don't expect it to be something you're going to be great at right from the beginning because however old you are today, that's how many years you've gone without doing this practice and you've been formed well deeply and, and, and profoundly more than you realize. And as you start to engage in the practice of Jesus, it's going to deform you in many ways away from, it's going to counterform you away from the ways that you've been deformed by the culture, by the world, by all the things that you've embraced, your family of origin. And so to do things in the way of Jesus, it's going to take counterformation. And so the J-curve uh, will be pivotal to helping you make it uh, through the long term. And so the last thing is is that it's it's repetition. There is no practice that will take without repetition. And and here's the other thing. Look, Sabbath, as beautiful as it is, it's like all the practices. It's a means to an end. Like the end isn't, I, I practice Sabbath, check the box, I'm good to go. Or even to be well rested and happy, which man, so many of us could would happily settle for that. But it's way more than that. Sabbath is a means to the ends that we can start to participate in the love and the life of God himself. Ideally, we're centering our entire lives around him and to live more deeply in him. And so that's not just something that happens on Sabbath, but something that happens all week long. Uh, as, as the biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann said it, people who Sabbath 
live all seven days differently. And that's probably one of the reasons why Sabbath is on day seven, not on day three or four. It's not a break in the middle of the week so we can get back to the real business of work. It's the apex. It's the pinnacle. It's what the entire week is all about. And I got to say, six years in, we're at that point where it is literally my favorite day of the week. I look forward to it so much, the Sabbath, because on it, we reflect, we ask the kids, what was the best part of your last week? It's our last Sabbath. Like, what is all that God has done? And we get to enjoy each other and spend time without any obligations. Like we can play together. My kids are in age where they love to play and I can be with them uninterrupted and not worry about like getting somewhere else. There's just so much joy. We go on adventures at times. We go see places we've never visited before. There's just so much joy that comes in the Sabbath. And then a few days after, I'm still kind of on that like afterglow that carries me into the week. And here's the thing. You don't have to live a Sabbath-less life of nonstop exhaustion. You, right where you are, no matter your stage of life, you can adopt the practice of Sabbath. (laughs) And the beautiful thing is you don't have to buy it. You don't have to order it online. You don't even have to earn it. All you have to do is stop. Thank you.